0: Close Horse, the podcast that once accidentally, true story, bought counterfeit shampoo. And you know what? It made my hair a disgusting mess. Um, and the only way I was able to identify it as counterfeit because it looked very legit in every other way was that the bottle, the printing, all the copy on the bottle was just a little bit blurry. And at first I thought it was my eyes because I am prone to putting the wrong contacts in the wrong eyes all the time. But in fact, it was just counterfeit shampoo. Anyway, I'm your host, Amanda, and this is episode 157. I'm gonna be really honest with all of you and tell you I'm sure you can tell I sound pretty weird this week that I haven't left the house in more than five days because I've been very ill with the illness of our times where it feels like COVID because it's so miserable, but it doesn't test for COVID. You know, that sickness. I'm sure if you know, you know. But the show must go on, and that's one of the big differences between having an independent podcast versus being part of a podcast network. There's no one here to cover for me when I'm sick, you know, and so I'm still pretty stuffed up, and I'm sure my voice sounds a little less lovely than usual, so I'm going to keep the intro-outro portion of this episode very, very short. The good news, however, is that my conversation with today's guest is so thorough and so lengthy that you don't even need to hear from me in this episode. You'll meet Julie Tamerler, a family law, business, and intellectual property attorney. Definitely the first lawyer we've had here on Close Horse, and I'm pretty stoked about it. She's also a big time secondhand shopper. Today, Julie is going to talk to us about the quandaries resale platforms face when it comes to knockoffs and fakes. And trust me. It's really complicated and there's a lot to unpack here. And she'll explain to us why we should read those terms and conditions that we all ignore before we agree to sell on these platforms. So let's jump right in. All right, Julie, welcome to Close Horse. Why don't you introduce yourself to everyone?
1: Hi, hey, great. Um, my name is Julie Tamerler. Um, I'm an attorney here in the Lehigh Valley in the state of Pennsylvania. Um, I'm Yes, I love Pennsylvania. <laughs> <laughs> um, I primarily practice in family law. Um, I'm also currently running for magisterial district judge in my district in the Lehigh Valley. Uh, wow. Sp- yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and in my spare time, I like to publish legal scholarship primarily focused on intellectual property. But my niche is the secondhand luxury goods industry.
0: Which is why you're here on Close Horse today. So the first time I spoke to you, the very first question I had was, listen, I stalked you on LinkedIn. I see that you practice (laughs) family law. Explain to me how your niche in terms of online publishing is the secondhand market.
1: So I love shopping secondhand. Um, It's something that I've literally always done since I was really young. Um, and I have been published before, but I wanted to get published again and legal publications are a real pain in the butt to get published in journals and law reviews. And if you're not like a literal professor, which I am not um you need to (laughs) talk about something really unique and specific um and i realized that no lawyers or legal scholars or professors were really talking about the secondhand luxury goods industry um in any real in-depth sense um and this was something i already was interacting with because i was you know shopping on thredup and the real real on poshmark and ebay um and i realized that i actually had a lot of questions about the industry legally and I kind of started doing research on my own, and I ended up writing a piece called "The Ship of Theseus," talking about the secondhand luxury goods industry and Chanel with the Fordham Intellectual Property Law Journal.
0: Uh, yeah, it's just yeah. my hobby. So you <laughs> just just your really like chill hobby. So you, yeah. when we started talking, you know, and you've brought this up already, like Tiffany v. eBay was a really important case when we talk about these platforms, these secondhand platforms selling designer or name brand goods. So I thought you could tell us a little bit about that and the gray area that it has created. Yes. So before I begin, because I
1: know I'm going to forget, I have to give off my fun lawyerly disclaimers that none of this is legal <laughs> advice. <laughs> All of this yeah, is Yeah, please do not take opinion. this. <laughs> No, no. (laughs) If you have, if you have legal questions, contact a bar attorney in your state. This is not an attorney client relationship. And all of this is just my opinion. Um, okay. (laughs) So (laughs) Tiffany versus eBay. Um, it actually talks about when, um, Tiffany sued eBay for selling counterfeit goods on its website. Um, and Tiffany essentially acknowledged that there were authentic Tiffany goods being sold, but there were also counterfeit goods. Um, and eBay's argument, which was successful, um, was essentially like, well, we are not in possession of the goods. So I'm sure a lot of people who listen to your podcast already know this, but when somebody's selling on eBay, they still have the things that they're selling. They don't send it into eBay like we do with things mm-hmm. like thread up the real, real. So eBay essentially said, look, we're doing what we can. Um, We have the sophisticated fraud search engine. Um, We have a reporting system. We do our own checks on our website. Um, And the court essentially said that that was enough because they did acknowledge that eBay can't exactly check the authenticity of each of these goods. And that would essentially be impossible for them to do.
0: Which is is true. I mean, and so the same would be the case for Poshmark or Depop. I mean, they're yes. I know that they try, and I say that in quotes because I don't know how in depth the trying is, but they do try to stomp out, you know, knockoffs, counterfeits, scams. But yeah. ultimately, at the end of the day, I would assume at this point they rely on a probably very small team to try to cover a shit ton that's that's the legal term i'm pretty sure a shit ton (laughs) of product listings like it's it's just like not possible like i'm sure they catch some stuff here and there but i would guess in most cases with and i don't know is there like a name for these platforms where they never have ownership of the actual item being sold is there a name for that
1: there isn't really like a technical term they usually just say that they don't take possession of the goods
0: Okay, so these non-possession takers, uh, it would seem to me that the vast majority of time, if they do catch someone selling fakes, it's probably Mm -hmm. after someone has already been sold a fake and they file a claim. That's my guess.
1: Yeah, that's my guess, too. I don't really know. I mean, the thing is, like, I'm sure you know, and anybody who shops secondhand knows, is that there's like a spectrum of sketchiness. You know, like you will, (laughs) you know, exactly what I mean. Like you open up Poshmark and you'll see like an Hermes bag for like, I don't know, a hundred dollars. And like the photo looks like really fake and everything. And you, (laughs) you know, you're like, you're like this, this is not a real Hermes bag. You know that like right off the bat. And then there's some bags where it's like, you know, it's a good deal, it's not like too good to be true, but it is a good deal. And you're not entirely sure. And the listing description doesn't give you a lot. Um, And then there's the problem that we're all scared of where somebody's selling a fake good, but it's at a price where you're not really questioning it. The photos look really good because as I'm sure we'll end up talking about fakes with bags in particular have gotten insanely good.
0: They have. They have. And I, I do like what you say. There is there is a spectrum of sketchiness, right? Like, sometimes yeah. it's really obvious in a lot of different ways. And there are people definitely trying to work scams on Poshmark that I don't even completely understand. Like, the people who are <laughs> I like, know. leave a comment where they're like, email wow. me the photos. And you're like, what? I'm oh, confused. like the spam accounts. Yeah, like what's yeah. what's their end game? Sometimes I just can't even figure it out. I don't I don't know. Yeah, there's weird stuff I, like I that. don't know how they're allowed to like sign up. I know, I know. Yeah. See, and like when I see stuff like that happening and clearly Poshmark isn't catching it, it leads me to believe, like, what else aren't they catching? And I also understand that they yes. are dealing with millions of listings. How could they possibly catch all the shenanigans? But there are definitely shenanigans. I something that I see come up here and there. You know, amongst the closed source community and also on Reddit are people selling something that is that is legit, like a designer luxury item on Mm -hmm. Poshmark or Depop or another platform. Then the seller getting it and claiming it was really damaged and sending back or at least photographing a product that is definitely not the original item they received and then getting to keep the item and the money And that's another one where I'm like, how does Poshmark crack down on that?
1: I don't know. Exactly. And that's like their customer service kind of arm of it. But I think too, is like you kind of caught on a, a tension that currently exists that I think is kind of explored in the Tiffany V eBay case where, you know, the court was like, okay, we figured it out fine. Like eBay is able to operate like this because they are not taking possession of the goods. So they're, you know, they're doing what they can. This makes sense. But in my piece, I kind of talk about the fact that we kind of create this gray area and the court acknowledges that it produces like a willful blindness problem at a certain point (laughs) Yes, where a company, yeah, a company like eBay could technically do just enough to not get in trouble, you know, where they have like these systems in place and they say they check and they do what they can to take, to keep fakes off their website, but not enough to completely stamp
0: them out do you know what i mean totally well and ebay is a great example because you can buy anything on ebay you can buy auto parts makeup uh bath and body Works candles from like 10 years ago i mean anything and (laughs) the faux products on there the copies range in many categories there's a lot of counterfeit beauty products on there uh lots of fake clothing from all areas and brands and parts of the pricing spectrum shoes i'm sure mm-hmm. there are probably knockoff electronics and car parts even and so and and like it's not a problem that is unique to eBay even right like we see this on Amazon yeah. with all their marketplace where they're also not taking possession of the product and people are drop shipping it and it's it's it is like on one end i do think that there is a lot of you know willful blindness to this uh just a lot of mm-hmm. covering the eyes and saying i don't know i don't see anything but then i also think it's like where yeah. would they even begin it's like they'd have to hire an entire army of people who were just watching these things and trying to pick up patterns. Exactly. It's, it's a lot um and you brought up a, que- a question you said that there was sort of like the gray areas were so complex with tiffany v ebay like what does it mean, and this was a great call out from you, if a bag, for mm-hmm. example, has been repaired, right, or customized, does that yeah. no longer count as the real product for legal reasons? We don't know where that line is. <laughs> um, and
1: that's something I kind of explore a lot. I know you're like, just give me an answer. I'm an attorney. So unfortunately, it's always <laughs> difficult. It's always like, it depends. Um but there is case law kind of fighting about this where well for currently chanel is suing the real real right now because they were in possession chanel got into possession of a certain number of chanel bags i believe it was actually only about seven but it doesn't matter Mm -hmm. you know the amount doesn't matter the fact that they're selling fakes matters um and they said that you know i believe one of them didn't have like the correct serial number and another bag one specifically, they said that the hardware, I think it was like the clasp, was not original. Mm. They didn't specify that the entire bag was fake. Right. So that kind of got me wondering, you know, at what point, at what level of alteration of like, for example, a Chanel flap, are you selling a counterfeit? And are you, in a sense, deceiving the public? Because the point of trademark law essentially is that the trademark indicates the source of the good and the quality of the good. So Chanel obviously wants to police its trademarks because you don't want to buy a Chanel bag. That's a fake and then it's garbage and doesn't hold up well. And you're like, Chanel quality is terrible because that's not true. right? Right. You know what I mean? You bought a fake Chanel bag and that taints the brand. Um, But there is a certain line where I wonder, you know, okay, if I replace the zipper on the inside of the bag, you know, can't I still sell it as a Chanel bag? And I don't, we actually don't know what that line is right now.
0: Right, yeah, I mean, that's really complicated because so basically what we're saying is there's this whole spectrum of fakeness with the far end being like an overt low quality fake and the other opposite end being it's genuine probably, but someone replaced a piece on it. Or did some repairs. Exactly. And I think that's really interesting because, like, if you were going to go buy a used car and someone had put new seat yes. covers on it, you wouldn't be like, this isn't a real Chevy, yeah. right? Like, I, it, it's a lot yes. more complicated, but yet similar, you know? Yeah, because
1: we're able to sell cars and, you know, disclose, like, this is what was done to the car. And we're perfectly good with, like you said, selling it as a Chevy, Um, but for example, in my piece, I talk about a line of Rolex cases where there was a guy who his job was, he would, he was a jeweler that, um, altered Rolexes. So what he would do is like, you'd buy a regular Rolex watch and you could take it to him and he would like bling it out essentially. Mm -hmm. So he would like affix diamonds to the bezel. Um, and and he actually like, I think he mainly just, um, did this service for like jewelers. It wasn't like very open to the public, Um, but Rolex sued him and they, they found that, you know, he was altering necessary and integral parts of the Rolex, um, and that could affect the quality of the Rolex. So he had to stop doing that because you couldn't, you know, piggyback off the trademark and sell them as Rolex watches. That was their problem with it. But the question is, what is a necessary and integral part and how do you apply that to other luxury goods?
0: Right? how How do
1: you? <laughs> I uh, I don't know. That's the thing. Because, like, for example, I talk about um, Christian Louboutin shoes, mm-hmm. um, and you know, shoes require maintenance, and you know, like the heel caps. Do you call it the heel cap? You know what I mean? Like the thing at the bottom yeah, of the heel. Yeah, I think that's, that's what like it is. Down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. They- you have to get the heel caps replaced every once in a while, you know, so that the shoe doesn't become damaged. So like that is kind of an alteration. Like I take my right. heels into a local cobbler. He puts on a new heel tap. And at the same time, like I checked Christian Louboutin's website. They don't do service. Like even if I wanted it serviced by Christian Louboutin, I couldn't do that.
0: Interesting. Um, that is, I mean, I have so many yeah. thoughts there, but that is a problem to me (laughs) in theory you should be wearing these for a really long time and you're always going to want to maintain them which would mean like replacing things like that the fact that they don't offer that service i mean that says a lot to me about the luxury realm that i already knew which is that like sustainability is not a priority in a lot of ways.
1: Yeah. And I've been, I'm sure you have too been hearing more about that with brands. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just been like a trend in the past, I don't know, decade or so where it's like, okay, well, prices are going up of goods and the quality is going down. And that even affects brands, you know, in the luxury realm, you know? Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, definitely they've taken on a lot of the same strategies of like a, some doing a, a majority of the production elsewhere, um, definitely cutting costs whenever mm-hmm. they can. I think it doesn't help that so many luxury brands have, you know, moved under the same umbrella or there are just a few very large conglomerates, we'll say, owning most of the biggest luxury brands out there. And so they're really looking at like how do we maximize profit off of these? Because the reality is that really a lot of those brands weren't hyper profitable. <laughs> For a very long time, yeah. Um, and you know that's we live in a and a time of like constant year over year growth and hyper profitability. And I just don't think that Chanel, for example, really lent itself to that in the past. Um, I was actually yeah. was so interesting. I was reading a conversation on Reddit today, um, and someone was like, "Well, mm-hmm. I think Gucci completely devalued themselves because now they take Klarna or one of those like." buy now, pay later platforms. (laughs) And I was like, interesting to make, by making it more accessible, you know?
1: Yeah. Well, they said that, like, I remember reading somewhere that like these luxury brands were so resistant to like appearing online, like having their own websites at one point in time, (sighs) you know, which now we're like, of course, Gucci has a website. Why wouldn't you want that? (laughs) But I, I feel like it's like an extension of that to like the more modern present day
0: yeah yeah definitely I mean I was just recording an episode of a different podcast with one of my friends and we were talking about how for a lot of the most like high-end uh longest living brands out there and most luxury brands would fall into that and maybe all of them uh there's always a resistance to change in a much bigger way But it's like, well, we've always done it this way. So why would we have a website or why would we take Klarna or why would we help people repair their stuff? And I think also there is a major resistance to the secondhand market as a whole from these luxury brands. Yeah,
1: I think personally that like now some of them are starting to get into it because they've realized that it is like this monster that's kind of been let loose and they could either try and participate and take it over themselves or places like the real real and thread up are going to be doing it anyway whether they like it or not right
0: right and i think that these brands once again they're you know for they have been conglomerized i don't know if that's a word but you know they're really looking to like really having a lot more, I don't know, attention to the balance sheet, really paying out to shareholders, that kind of stuff. And so they can't afford to lose even a tiny fraction of market share because if there's any industry that has a low ceiling on it in terms of growth, it's going to be luxury. The whole point of luxury is that you can't sell to that many people or then it's not luxury anymore, right? It's just stuff. Yeah, and they have to hold on to it. Yeah, and now we have the problem of
1: first of all, attitudes have changed, where people are now okay with buying secondhand Mm -hmm. goods. They don't see a stigma associated with that. Sometimes it's even seen as a positive thing. So there's that, and then there's the technological innovation of it's easier than ever to buy secondhand goods because I can go ahead and buy a used Chanel bag from the real real on my phone, on my couch, in my pajamas. Um, and so that market has kind of, in my opinion, kind of exploded and become easier and more accessible for everybody. Mm -hmm. It's no longer like, okay, if I want to buy a secondhand bag, first of all, I have to want to do that. Then I have to find a physical type of consignment store near me, you know, hope that they have it in stock. And then it's at a price I like, and also trust them enough, you know, on like a local level. Mm -hmm. Now, I mean, I was thinking about it the other day when I was like looking at the real real and I was like, I mean, God knows how many Birkins they probably have. Like, I have no idea. It's probably (laughs) insane when you think about it.
0: I actually was thinking, I mean, we're going to talk about the real real a lot today. Spoiler everyone. But I was actually thinking of you (laughs) the other day and this episode because I was looking at the real real and I was thinking, you know, they have a lot of stuff on sale right now. And I was like, man, Mm -hmm. here's one element (laughs) of taking possession that they probably didn't think about when they were a lot smaller because they probably moved through product pretty fast, right? Now they're they're yes. taking as many Birkins and and, you know, and dresses and any shoes, all of it, as they can get because they have these yeah. sales targets to hit. And what's happening is now they have to put stuff on sale because they have inventory that no one wants. And that stuff's a liability. Yes. Right. Uh it takes up space. Exactly. Um it is you lose the money that you invested in launching it ultimately. Uh, and it can sit around for yes. a really long time. I, As a person who has worked in e-com, I gotta tell you that one of the things you don't think of that is going to, at some point, cause a complete fire drill amongst your team is your warehouse is gonna say, you're running out of space, you're running out of bins. Or if you use a third-party warehouse, they're gonna say, uh, you have hit your your Plan for bin space. And now we're going to start charging you this extra fee every day until you either re sign oh a contract gosh. for more space or reduce your space. And that has happened to me at a few jobs, actually. It's really scary. And <laughs> uh, I assume that something like this could happen at a place like the Real Real. I guarantee you they rent their warehouse space. Very few people at this point buy a warehouse. Yeah, that would make sense. Maybe Amazon, right? Yeah. And so with yeah. The style count on the website must be just wild. And we're not even seeing everything probably that they have. Okay, let's talk about the real real. Something that you told me when we were talking before that blew my mind is that uh the people who authenticate the goods at the real real are copywriters. They're not like trained yes. experts. This isn't like antiques roadshow, okay? Like these are People who are coming and train <laughs> trained. And you told me about an article in Forbes um, that a, For- a Forbes reporter wrote. They went and took a tour of the real rail. They were really impressed by it, I think. And then they bought a bag and it turned out not to be yes. genuine. And so that sent me down yes. a rabbit hole <laughs> uh, about how this authentication worked or didn't work. And... I found an article from Fashionista from 2019 where this is, oh, this is maybe not going to surprise you, but it might concern you. Uh, things that were like target collabs with designers.
1: Oh, I know what you're talking you saw that? about. Okay. I cited that in like one of, and one of my many footnotes okay yes so what they do is like i'm sure we all know like target has always been doing collabs with like different designers um and so for example like i think they did like zach posen and then there are a couple dresses and the label obviously looks a little different like the label if you just look at it like you'll know it's a target collaboration because it'll say so
0: yeah you don't have to be like an expert to spot it this is one in which i'll say like no
1: you don't you would be like
0: something seems different here yeah yeah, you're
1: not even getting into like, well, the fabric's poly and the stitching isn't right. like, no, you just look at the label. Yeah. Yeah. Um and so the real real they have listed that before where like they listed the Target collab as the designer and that's a completely different
0: line. Yeah. Uh and that doesn't that doesn't give you a lot of faith in their ability to authenticate. And once again, like real real is taking possession of the stuff. So they are assuming a lot more legal liability and financial liability and a million other things. It is a ton of liability. Yeah, that's why. It, yeah. yeah. You know, you and I talked a lot about real. real we were pre- preparing for this because we were like, you know, like they've kind of bitten off more than they can chew here because they obviously, yeah. and you're going to tell us some shocking numbers about this in a couple of minutes. They have... Taking yeah. out a lot of money, let's just say. And that money comes with strings attached, as it always does. And one is that they have to really yes. hit some really impressive growth and sales numbers in order to be able to pay back that money. And that means that they have to grow the business really, really fast. And it seems like there are a lot of growing pains there. For example, the fact that they have so much stuff on the, on the site right now on sale says that to me, right? Like they, yeah. they're they not moving product as fast as they used to. but No, I had a feeling I was like, okay, so they have just copywriters. uh, And I don't mean to just say just copywriters, but they're not experts in this realm. And they also have to write the copy for the site. So they have a lot of work to do with every product. They have them authenticating and then, you know, getting these products ready for launch. I decided uh, to go to my primary source anytime I'm trying to figure out what's really happening behind the scenes at a company. And that is the Glassdoor Reviews. (laughs) And I found, oh, I, yeah. I mean, people are not happy working at the real, real. Um, and I specifically focused on people who had been copywriters and they're very unhappy. Uh, someone said there's an unrealistic daily quota. Are you ready for this? Of processing th- oh, no. 300 <laughs> items a day with 38 <sighs> items an hour. 38 items no, an hour. Can't.
1: You just can't.
0: How could you authenticate it and write the copy? <laughs> and I will tell you, I see the measurements on there and I'm like, those aren't right either. So <sighs> it's just too many, too yeah. many things. Someone said, the authenticators are overworked and underpaid. No way should a single person be getting paid forty-five dollars to $50,000 a year and be responsible for pricing items, setting the condition, performing quality control authenticating and taking microscopic images of the items that's literally five jobs in one role and then once again they have to hit 300 items a day while doing all of that
1: and like not all things are equal in terms of difficulty obviously like personally i have found um clothing to be easier um for a variety of reasons but like bags I we talked about this before like bags terrify me I genuinely mean that like yeah bags are like a completely different beast in the sense that I mean they're status items um they're one size fits all so it's more lucrative to fake on top of that because you know you have to do different sizes mm-hmm. um yeah so like you know it makes a big difference whether you're authenticating like a Dior dress, in my opinion, versus a Dior bag. You know, one is going, has, in my opinion, a higher risk of it being a fake. So it's not even like, okay, divide the, you know, daily quota into like equal amounts of time. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was looking around to see how much training the people were getting for the copywriters for doing this authentication, because like you said, it's really complicated. And I was envisioning that you would be very niched out. It would be like, you handle clothing from these three labels and you do bags just from Gucci or whatever, right? Um, And actually it doesn't seem to really work that way. And from what I could gather, most people come into the job with little to no experience in that realm and they just get trained. Right. But the other thing that I saw that was alarming when I looked at the Glassdoor reviews is that everybody time and time again was saying no one in management knows how to authenticate. So if you call your manager because you're having a problem with something, they're kind of like, well, go with what is best, what you think is best. And that's also concerning Um, but it comes back in my mind to a business that has grown way too fast
1: it's also just not profitable as a business so you kind of run into like this reoccurring problem where it's like okay on one hand you know you're being speedy so you can have like higher turnover and get things listed faster um but then does that hurt you as a business because then you know people start to talk or they have negative customer experiences You know what I mean? It's just like how do you kind of stop the bleeding? Like what technique do you want to do? Because both have their downsides. You know what I mean? Like if you take longer to authenticate, um, you know, you get stuff less stuff on the site, does it even work all the time? You know what I mean? Like it's not an easy answer on how to get it to be profitable.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean it's it's not. Like I wouldn't start this business because I don't I don't (laughs) know how you get there. It's way too risky. And like what would be best for them, but then, you know, like the thing that they speak to all the time is like, this is authenticated, right? It's confirmed. Like, yeah, that's
1: their whole it's thing. Safe, it's safe, right?
0: Like that's their UVP. Yeah. It's like, yeah, it's secondhand luxury, which you can get any of, number of other places. But what makes us unique, our unique value proposition is one, it's going to be 100% authenticated. And two, you're going to shop for yep. it, it from the ease of your home, right? Like that's their exactly. UVP. If they Stopped bringing the product in and just had people selling individually, like Poshmark, like eBay. They would lose. They what would differentiate them? There would be nothing, right? Um, exactly. But I think that we and we're going to talk about thread up too. We're in this era now of the secondhand marketing Take it's the secondhand market taking one of two options here. One is that you are a platform where people list and sell and you take a cut, right? and your risk is pretty minimal. You deal with customer service stuff. You have to have a large technical infrastructure that's reliable, but that's that. You're not like you're not touching product or dealing with inventory liability. And then the other exactly. side are these other platforms that are like, "No, you send us the product. We photograph it, we measure it, we inspect it, we launch it, we store it, we ship it." Yeah. I don't know how you do that profitably. Because it's a single SKU business, right? So every yes. thing that you launch, you have one of, you know? <laughs> so you're spending all that money. Like yeah. At one of my jobs, we did some analysis and I'll just say it was ModCloth. We did some analysis into how much it cost us to launch one style on the site. So that would mean like photographing it, writing the copy, taking the measurements, the actual money of like receiving it, putting it away, all that stuff. And it was about $300. And that was really interesting for us to think about because even though most of the time we'd buy a thousand units of something, right? And of course we would sell all those and make back that $300 and some. Sometimes we would go to market and be like, oh, we just really wanted it. So we only bought six. And then we didn't make $300 uh, to cover. We didn't make enough to cover it, right? And that was really eye-opening. And when you have a smaller business, you have to be even more in tune with that because like launching something and then only selling $50 worth of it Means that you lost money on just having that product, and so it's really hard for me to look at at real real or uh, thread up and think that they're profitable. Because yeah, I know they're not using a model yeah. or anything, but they're still taking pictures. I assume someone. Exactly. I don't know about ThreadUp because I see a lot of really janky photos on there that are like sideways, wrinkly, that kind of thing. But in theory, someone yeah, is, yeah. you know touching them up a little bit, uploading them, we're paying people to write copy, you know, all this stuff. Yeah. It's hard for me to imagine how you make money off of that. I just, I, I, I just yeah. don't think you can, you know?
1: Well, the thing is like, I get it We're like, it sounds like an awesome idea. I mean, I can see like the pitch deck now in mm-hmm. my head where it's like people love secondhand goods. Like it's an emerging industry. People are cool with it. Like the market is valued at, you know, it's something like obscene now, right? You know, people will just send us their stuff. And once we have the stuff, we could practically price it however we want. Right. You know what I mean? Like I can totally see why somebody would think that way. Like, you know, I know a lot of people individually who have like talked about, you know, trying to sell things from like thrift stores, essentially like thrift resellers. And like, it's not as easy as it looks no, to make no. a profit that way. It's
0: it's not like no one's getting rich off of that no. kind of resale at all.
1: And if you are, I I thought about it, it was like the only way you can like make and make consistent money is the issue too. Not just have like, you know, you got lucky on like one Hermes scarf that you found at like the <laughs> thrift store or right, something. Right, Is like if you would have to get these pieces at such like rock bottom prices, like the bins, like just keep finding like designer stuff like per pound somehow. And that doesn't even take into account like the cost of your time. However, you would price it. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, I have. I have no idea how. And the thing is, with thread up too is like it's changed a little bit recently, but like they could not control what they were even being sent. So Mm -hmm. they're just getting like these random cleanup bags and no matter what they have to pay to process the bag. And sure. Maybe somebody, you know, sent you a bag with like a lot of good stuff. Like here's a Gucci bag and here's some like designer clothing, but you can get another bag that's just filled with like stuff from like Old Navy and the Gap and maybe like literal garbage. And you still have to pay to process it.
0: Totally. And then dispose of it. I actually went into their glass store reviews too, they have like so many. They've had a lot of people work for them. They're a big company. And there were many mentions from the people who do the receiving, the sorting, the photography, all that stuff. Of lots mm-hmm. of bags having human waste in them, and oh, that's ridiculous. I know, I know, and I just like. Oof. I don't. I like. I said. I don't know how you make either of these concepts work that way. Even though, like, I want the secondhand market to be big, I think that it doesn't have to rely on these huge mega businesses. I think it needs to be more small business, local, uh, even just peer to peer selling. I think that like. To turn it into a massively profitable, like we're making millions and billions every year business, it's just not scalable. Let's take a moment to thank some of the incredible small businesses who keep Clothes Horse going via their generous Patreon support. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Vino Vintage, based just outside of L.A., we love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Gabriella Antonis is a visual artist and an ethical trade fashion designer Help one person of any size at a time, including beyond size 40. To inquire about this serendipitous intersectional offering of either concept, DM her on Instagram to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Gabriella Antonis. And that's Gabriella with one L. Gotta get that spelling right. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. Check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at Dylanpage Life and Style. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand blocked, sewn and embellished in Detroit, Michigan, find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. In addition to clothing, the shop also features a large selection of vintage vinyl and old school video games. Find them on Instagram at High Energy Vintage, online at HighEnergyVintage.com, and at markets in and around Boston. Fagavan Vintage DTLV is a vintage clothing, accessories, and decor reselling business based in downtown Las Vegas, Nevada. Not only do we sell in Las Vegas, but we're also located throughout resale markets in San Francisco, as well as at a curated boutique called Lux and Ivy located in Indianapolis, Indiana. Jessica, the founder and owner of Vagabond Vintage DTLV, recently opened the first IRL location located in the Arts District of downtown Las Vegas on August 5th. The shop has a strong emphasis on 60s and 70s garments, single-stitch tees, and dreamy loungewear. Follow them on Instagram at Vagabond Vintage DTLV and keep an eye out for their website coming fall of 2022. You and I were talking about the real real and I was saying like, listen, I have been hearing crazy stories from people about like they sold the real real something once and they are just like stalking them now to please send them more stuff or they'll have a community person come over and go through their closet. Like they are really like desperate for inventory. And I said, it seems like they are really desperate to hit some sort of sales number. And that's when you dropped the bomb about their financial situation.
1: Yes. So, um, the Q2 2022 results, um, for the real, real was a net loss of 53.2 million. Um, and if you, yeah. And if you look at like their, you know, valuation history, they've just always been in the red and it just gets worse and worse with each year. Um, and then ThreadUp's Q3 2022 results—that was a net loss of 23.7 million. Like both of them, just bleed money essentially. Um, they are not profitable, and they haven't been profitable. Um, for, in my opinion, you know the reasons that we discussed. Um, and additionally, the real real has a convertible debt load. Um, and there's two portions of that. One due in 2025, yeah, and then one due in 2028. Oof. So the 2025 convertible debt load is 150 million.
0: Oh my um, god! And then, the tw- and then the
1: 2028 convertible debt load is 250 million.
0: Wow! Wow! So I was doing yeah. some re- reading about convertible debt, and apparently it's sort of the least the least appealing option for financing a business because those kinds of businesses are more likely to end in bankruptcy. Yeah. It's not great. (laughs) It's not great. Yeah. It's a really challenging debt to pay off. There's a share, like stock involved. It's all very, it's very difficult. It's not the same as someone saying, Hey, I'm an investor. I'm going to invest $150 million in your business. And maybe you'll make that back someday and maybe you won't, but that's okay. Like, I mean, it's not okay, but like, you know, that's, that's how it goes. I I know what you mean. Yeah. And so this is a lot riskier, which also makes me think that probably they had a hard time getting investors. I I think who were like, I don't understand how this becomes a profitable business.
1: Yeah. I think if you're an investor and you actually like look at the numbers, because I've looked at the numbers, I've looked at their filings just for my own curiosity. I mean, you kind of see that there's like this pattern where like, it's not getting better. It's just getting worse every year, you know, and they've changed things up in recent years. You know, they started selling like art and home goods on the real, real, like really like high-end things. And they've expanded much more into jewelry. Um, and they even sell like luxury watches that like, you can buy a Rolex on the real, Reel. Um, and and art, you know, and they even have some beauty, which I think is like, that's just my own opinion. I think it's like a weird move, but, um, you know, they're trying different things and it's not working essentially. Um, so yeah, if I were an an investor, I would not, I mean, you've and you know, they've had time at the same time too. It's been, it's been years since they've gone public. Um, and it's just not, it's not even improving. It's just, like I said, it's just like worse and worse every year.
0: Well, and as you mentioned, they've had some legal issues, like they're being sued by Chanel. Um, yes, and they, were they also, also got su-
1: sued by stockholders.
0: Yes, yeah, so tell us a little bit about that, because yeah. that's, that's a big deal. So essentially, as we've
1: mentioned before, the RealReal's whole thing is that they authenticate stuff. I mean, you see it on all their advertising. Mm-hmm. They say that things are 100% authenticated, like 100% of the time, which, of course, you can imagine— is a big claim so essentially these shareholders said well we bought these shares under that assumption that is what you promised us as shareholders that you do as a company and you essentially lied to us and that was like a type of fraud um so ergo like the shares were misvalued and you essentially misled your investors which when you think about it i mean it's kind of you kind of get their point, you know what mm-hmm, I mean? Mm-hmm. And I get it, where it's like, okay, well, how can you be right a hundred percent of the time? Well, you can't say that then. <laughs> you right, know, like right, if you're not yeah. right a hundred percent of the time, then you can't say that you are, and that is misleading. Um, I don't recall off the top of my head what the settlement was with shareholders for that issue, but I remember it being significant. I mean, I think it was off the top of my head, I think it was like around ten million dollars.
0: Wow. Um,
1: and like I said, they're still being sued by Chanel now that's ongoing still um the litigation took a break because they were going to try and work it out and surprise they have not worked it out so it's still ongoing
0: wow i mean yeah this is this is not a great situation so here is my question for you lots of people have sent their stuff into the real real right like it's there it's not with them the owners it's there waiting to be sold yes what happens if the real real goes bankrupt so I don't know. <laughs>
1: I have <laughs> talked about it. I, I wrote, I wrote a piece for, um, the fashion law recently talking about what I think would happen if the real, real and or thread up go bankrupt. Um, and my answer, my personal opinion is that if you send stuff in, you might be out of luck. Because That's what I like think. I mentioned, I, <laughs> yeah like there's like the lawyer answer where it's like well in bankruptcy there's a trustee and then there's like a priority of lenders and you get into like is it a secured transaction like you get into like you know the technical part of it but at the end of the day like you also have to think like a normal person where it's like okay with up, there's a there's like warehouses of unprocessed bags like i don't think you're gonna necessarily get your stuff back yeah, I mean, you know what I, I mean like just common sense.
0: I mean, how would they do it? The the sheer amount of oh, money they know. would have to spend to send it back, to sort through it, to yeah. make sense of it, and then to actually return it to you. It would seem to me that you don't get it back. I mean, and the same thing if ThreadUp went bankrupt. I mean, we know ThreadUp is approximately one billion years behind. I'm processing yeah. their packages anyway, but you were telling me that full disclosure. You- hold on uh-huh. the the
1: thread up actually has a bag of mine. <laughs> they have had it for like over five
0: months. <laughs> oh my Just god! Full disclosure.
1: Yes, and they sent me they send me like I forget about it, and they send me like emails where they're like, "We're sorry, like we're working on it," and I'm like, "I forgot about it." But anyway, continue.
0: Well, so you said that there just from looking at the terms and conditions that totally everyone ignores when they sign up to sell on one of these platforms, but that you should read, that it would imply that the average customer probably wouldn't have a lot of, I don't know, a lot of room to really get their stuff back or be reimbursed if one of these platforms went bankrupt or lost their package, which happens a lot. Yes, Uh, surprisingly, it does happen a lot. So can you tell me like what what within those terms and conditions that like nobody who's listening to this has ever read would be (laughs) sort of an important red flag? Because I think like everyone, whether you're starting a new job or signing up to send your stuff to the real real, you really should take a look at these things. Or if you're like, I can't handle it, like do some Googling because someone somewhere has taken a look at these agreements and it's going to tell you things that you should you should know, you know. Are there is there yeah. anything in these sellers agreements that would be a red flag for you, or not not even necessarily a red flag, but something of note?
1: There is a lot of note. <laughs> um, so the the thing the thing is is um, like for example, ThreadUp's consignment agreement says if there's a dispute between you and ThreadUp, ThreadUp will have no obligation to pay any payout or other amounts due to you, including without limitation amounts unrelated to the dispute unless and until the dispute is resolved and then both the real real and thread up have terms of use requiring binding and final arbitration and they waive class actions um so you you have to go to like arbitration I don't know the terms of their arbitration but you can't do a class action which I mean, people lawyers have opinions on class actions, but <laughs> I personally think that's a little bit more equitable um, to right. do. And then there's the fact that when you send them your stuff, you are essentially agreeing that anything can happen to them. Like if if they lose your stuff, you you can't you know fight them. You'd probably go to like arbitration if anything. Um, mm-hmm. They can sell your stuff for whatever they want um they can withhold your money um it's a very expansive agreement that quite frankly i mean like i i sent some stuff to ThreadUp, and it's stuff that like wasn't particularly valuable but also wasn't in my opinion like worth my time listing so like that's the gap thread up kind of filled for me um but at the same time like i don't know where it is i don't even remember like what i sent them Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I pretty much agreed. And I looked at it later, (laughs) um, (laughs) that they could pretty much do whatever, whatever they want with my, with my stuff. Like they, they remain, they retain control over the sale price. Um, yeah, they, they pretty much are able to do anything they want with it. Um, yeah. So the real, real consignment agreement states your use of our services is at your sole risk. Our consignment, get paid now, and other services is on an as-is and as-available basis. Um, the real real and everybody associated with it will not be liable for any indirect, incidental, all these other types of damages for loss of profits, goodwill, use, data, or other intangible losses, um, including results from the use or inability to use our services or website and um, literally just anything it's just very expansive um and then like i said if there's a dispute you go to arbitration um and i'm sure they control the terms of that although i don't know what like i said what their arbitration terms are um so in bankruptcy especially like for example i don't know what would happen like if the real real theoretically
0: mm-hmm. declare
1: bankruptcy i mean i don't think there's anything stopping them from having what's essentially like a fire sale on a bunch of their stuff
0: Mm -hmm. to
1: just get rid of it. For example, like, I don't know, maybe the warehouse wants them out. They can't pay the next warehouse bill. They're like, let's try and thin out this warehouse as fast as possible. You know, maybe then I'd be a little annoyed where I'm like, Hey, I gave you like this Burberry trench coat, expecting you to be able to sell it as a, at a good price. And you know, your company's going under and like, I don't like that you're selling it for like 30 bucks, but there's nothing I can do to stop that, you know, because right. they have my stuff and I agree that they could sell it for whatever they want. And that is completely on me at that point.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I find it hard to believe that they wouldn't have some blowout uh, warehouse sale or just selling stuff off by the pallet to smaller stores. I mean, there are a million ways that they would try to recoup and clear out inventory as fast as possible. But ultimately, you know, like you are, by agreeing to sell on these platforms, basically giving up your rights to that product or what happens to it next. And I think, you know, we're still, even though it feels, I mean, you know, secondhand shopping has been around for a very long time. We are still in the very early days of selling secondhand online. And I am yes. sure that over time we can, we'll see right. an evolution here that could be more in favor of the seller or, or not, right? It's hard to say. Um, mm-hmm. But definitely nothing good. It's, it's, this is sounds really dark, but ultimately, I don't think <laughs> there's gonna be any sea change here in terms of protecting consumers more, especially the people who are selling their product. I don't think there's going to be a sea change there until one of these platforms implodes and suddenly everybody sees how this is really playing out. Because I have conversations yeah. on a regular basis and have since 2020 with people who have sent stuff to ThredUp and it's been lost or it's sold for 90 cents a year later. Yeah. You know, who who later were like, I, I feel like they took advantage of me. Right. And now I'll never sell from them again. Yeah or buy from them or whatever but ultimately like there's not enough of that whispering out there for people to start to say like hey maybe i should move away from these platforms and so i think if ThreadUp went bankrupt or real real we would see people being like wait a minute wait was it broken i had no idea i signed that agreement (laughs) you know yeah exactly because it usually like doesn't come into
1: play I mean, right. I don't know what would happen. Like, I know it's happened. It's also like to some extent, just like a numbers game where like somebody has definitely consigned something to them and it got lost. I don't entirely know what happens when that occurs, but like, I mean, you're just like not in a good position at that point.
0: Yeah, I mean, I've I've talked to a lot of people who sent, and I think this is before real 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 really coming up. They sent really nice stuff to a uh, thread up and. It was lost, uh-huh. like nice bags. Oh, that's and terrible. Things like that. I know, I know. And this was happening a lot in late 2020, early 2021. I don't think up ever caught up with the sheer flow of inventory that's coming their way. Now you actually have to pay like 13 bucks for a clean out bag. Oh, well, it's about time. Yes, before the bag was free. And now
1: you have to like do the $13 and people like they're, Uh, People feel all types of ways about it.
0: (laughs) I mean, listen, they're doing you a service, but I like, I sent stuff to thread up once in the very early days when I was working for a rental platform that was looking to get into resale because, you know, I wanted to see what the experience was like. So I sent them a bag of actually like pretty decent stuff that I probably could have sold on Poshmark Mm -hmm. for a few hundred dollars and they took Mm -hmm. the bag. Um, and a year later I got four hundred four dollars and twenty five cents credited to my account. (laughs) Um, and I was like, yeah, okay. Never doing that again, you know, but I will say like, I guess I could have just sent them a bag of crap that I didn't feel like driving to the Goodwill and they would have taken that too, you know? So in that way they're doing a service, um, and they're saving you the time of having to list all that stuff on Poshmark or take photos or all these other things that are actually really, really time consuming. And once again, prove like, exactly. how, how is this like a profitable concept?
1: <laughs> yeah, but you, you also <laughs> kind of touched on another problem where it's like a lot of these sites Operate with a lot of like site credit. So, usually, when you consign something with ThreadUp or the Real Real, I'm more familiar with consigning with ThreadUp, you know, you get a certain amount of money back and you get more money if you just use that as site credit. Right. So, a lot of people, I mean, I cannot estimate the amount, but I'm sure there's a lot of money currently on the site, like as site credit. Mm -hmm. But if a company no longer exists and you had site credit with them the credit no longer exists
0: yes do you know what that's i mean that's right yeah you like lose it and i think that's yeah. important too i've definitely had friends by yeah. other consignment shops platforms you know lose money yes that they were holding on to waiting yeah. for that thing and certainly any of us who have credit on any of these platforms would lose it immediately.
1: I'm not saying that like there needs to be like a functional like run on the bank. Like if you have credit with like ThreadUp <laughs> or the Real, Real where it's like this attorney from Pennsylvania is saying that. Like, no, I'm no, lose but I just think credit. it's something.
0: But. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's just something to be mindful of because I think people tend to let yes. that stuff go.
1: I wouldn't let a lot of credit sit personally. Like I wouldn't. Yeah. I would want to like keep it moving.
0: Yeah, I mean listen, the real real would love for you to never use your credit. That's a win-win for them. Yes. Um also it's important and I don't know what the agreement is with the real real or ThreadUp, but some places actually start to deduct from your credit over time if you don't use it, which happened to me at the Buffalo really? Exchange a long time ago. Yeah. Yeah, so Oh my gosh, it's that's so crazy. Once again, none of us read these agreements. So like who knows? Well, you know what? ThreadUp got
1: me like the first time I used them because I got like a certain amount of like money and I could have just like paid myself out, but I was like, you know what, let me buy some things from ThreadUp. I bought a ton (laughs) of stuff, just you know, things didn't fit or I didn't like it. And I was like, okay, well, I could return it. So I had to pay to return it. And then that money converted into only site credit. Like I couldn't uh... convert it back into being able- and I was like, I was like, they got me and I'm a lawyer and I did a double check. Like I wasn't <laughs> like thinking about it really. Like it was fine. It wasn't like a g- huge deal, but I was a little bit annoyed because I felt I felt like it wasn't very clear. And I'm like, you have to know that not everybody would be happy with that. No,
0: no. And once again, these are just things that people aren't thinking of or will often learn the hard way. So it's really great for us to share those experiences when they happen so that others maybe don't find themselves in the same boat. But I, you know, I think that often people aren't talking about loudly, I would say about where these things can go wrong. And, you know, I, yeah. having conversations about this is not meant to uh, deter you from shopping secondhand or reselling your stuff at all. Of that, yeah. You know, we want, I think we can both agree. We both love secondhand. We want everybody to be engaging in that in any way possible. But it is important to remember that these are not charitable organizations, right? They are here to make a profit, to drive as many sales as possible. And sometimes that might mean that it's at the expense of you, the customer, you, the person who's selling your stuff. Um, and it is interesting yeah. to think about these resale platforms where they take ownership of the product, right? Because in effect, they have two customer sets. They have the people who consign their product and they have the people who buy the product. Whereas when you look at Poshmark or Depop, they may look at their customer as being the person who buys the things, but really their customer. And sometimes this is why it's not a very equitable situation for them. The customer is actually the person selling the product, even though like yeah. in general, these sites prioritize the person who bought the product, which is not fair because these businesses don't exist if people don't list their product there. So I think, like I was saying, we're so early in the lifespan of selling secondhand product online that all of these platforms need some fine tuning to say the least
1: yeah it really is like currently in my opinion like the wild west yes
0: that's Um, what i think too
1: we're, we're all like figuring it out. And it's, it's interesting. Cause like my piece kind of talks about the fact we're like, on one hand, I do criticize the real, real, because I think that they could have better oversight. Mm-hmm. Um, I criticize the way that they run their business. And I think if you're saying, you know, it's hundred percent authentic, you need to do that, not just like ethically, but legally, because trademark infringement is strict liability, which means that it doesn't matter if you meant well or if you tried really hard to make sure it was real. If you're selling a fake, you're selling a fake and you're liable. It doesn't matter. Right. So there's that. But then there's the fact that my piece also argues that I feel like the law is not in a good place right now because I want companies like the real, real to have room to try. You know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. the fact that they can get hammered so hard for trying to do this. And like I said, I still criticize them because I feel like, you know, they're not necessarily doing a good job. But I just like the fact that the strict liability of trademark infringement makes it so that it's like you shouldn't try. And I think that means that we end up with platforms like Poshmark where we have this gray area where we don't want to take possession as a company because the liability is insane, but at the Mm -hmm. same time we'll let people sell stuff on our platform and do just enough to make sure that we can't get in trouble under eBay V Tiffany.
0: Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, for sure. And there's no way that none of these platforms aren't aware of this. Um, I, I mean, I, th- I in think in my opinion. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like they they know they know. And, you know, I think there are a lot of reasons why if, if I were going to start a secondhand platform right now, I would absolutely not take possession. One of those is because of the legal liability. The other is the financial liability. But yes, I'm glad that someone's trying it because I think that the reason these platforms are successful to the extent that they are right now is that a lot of people don't have the time to list this stuff. Yes, to follow through with it, to do the shipping—it's a pain in the butt. Actually, I don't know if you've ever sold on Poshmark. It really but it's, is. It's annoying. I, I have. It's yeah. It's annoying. It is right? so annoying. It is so
1: annoying. And I'm like that's why I use ThreadUp because like there are certain things that I'm like, okay, this is really good. Like there's a lot of value in it you know you could get that value out but like you know i had some like suits cuz i i have to wear a lot of suits from like j crew that were like perfectly fine you know but like there's so much j crew on poshmark and i just like didn't want to deal with it and i was moving you
0: know what i mean yeah, i was like ok yeah. this
1: fits what i need it to do you know what i mean
0: right right no and i mean i will say one thing about uh thread up that i do appreciate is they actually price stuff very reasonably and make things accessible so like people would get to wear your suits who maybe generally would be priced out and that's awesome um so yes you know we obviously are seeing that there are a lot of complications and drawbacks here but you know you love secondhand i love secondhand If you're enjoying this episode, then this is a great time to remind you that my work here at Close Horse is made possible by the support of listeners like you, just like NPR, and these great small businesses. Please go give them your support. Blank Cass, or Blanket Coats by Cass, is focused on restoring, renewing, and reviving the history held within vintage and heirloom textiles by embodying the love, craft, and energy Find us on Instagram at shop underscore velvet underground or online at www.shopvelvetunderground.com. Com. St. Evans is a New York City-based vintage shop that is dedicated to bringing you those special pieces you'll reach for again and again. More than just a store, St. Evans is dedicated to sharing the stories and history behind the garments. 10% of all sales are donated to a different charitable organization each month. New Vintage is released every Thursday at Wearsaintevens.com with previews of new pieces and more brought to you on Instagram at we're underscore st. Dot evens. That's where Saint Evans. Country Feedback is a mom and pop record shop in Tarboro, North Carolina. They specialize in used rock, country, and soul, and offer affordable vintage clothing and housewares. Do you have used records you want to sell? Country Feedback wants to buy them. Find us on Instagram at Country Feedback Vintage and Vinyl, or head down east and visit our brick and mortar. All are welcome at this inclusive and family friendly record shop in the country. Republica Unicornia Yarns, handmade yarn and notions for the color obsessed. Made with love and some swearing in fabulous Atlanta, Georgia, by head yarn wench Kathleen. Get ready for rainbows with a side of giving a damn. Republica Unicornia is all about making your own magic using small batch, responsibly sourced, hand-dyed yarns, and thoughtfully made notions. Slow fashion all the way down and discover the joy of creating your very own beautiful hand-knit, crocheted, or woven pieces. Find us on Instagram at republica underscore unicornia Underscore Yarns, and at www.republicaunicornia.com. republicaunicornia. dot a slow fashion brand, ethically made by hand from vintage and deadstock materials, most notably vintage towels. Founder Danny has worked in the industry as a fashion designer for over 10 years, but started Picnic Wear in response to her dissatisfaction with the industry's shortcomings. Picnic Wear recently moved to rural North Carolina, where all their sewing and accessories are now designed and cut, but the majority of their sewing is done by skilled garment workers in New York City. Their customers take comfort in knowing that all their sewists are paid well above New York City minimum wage. Picnic Wear offers minimal waste and maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Cute Little Ruin is an online shop dedicated to providing quality vintage and secondhand clothing, vinyl, and home items in a wide range of styles and price points. If it's ethical and legal, we try to find a home for it. Vintage style with progressive values. Find us on Instagram at Cute Little Ruin. Is there a little bit of Italy in your soul? Are you an enthusiast of pre-loved decor and accessories? Bring vintage Italian style and history into your space with the pewter thimble. We source useful and beautiful things and mend them where needed. We also find gorgeous illustrations and make them print worthy. Tarot cards, tea towels, and hand-picked treasures available to you from the comfort of your own home responsibly sourced from across Rome lovingly renewed by fairly paid artists and artisans with something for every budget discover more at theputerthimble.com. how do you think uh resale whether it's luxury or otherwise could be better and more ethical and you know ethical meaning like to its workers but also to its customers where customers aren't at risk of being sold fake stuff or sending in stuff that they're never going to get back like how do you think resale can be its best
1: I don't know if this is possible because this is just my <laughs> dream world but okay. I wish there were I wish there were a way in which brands could somehow participate in the authentication of goods Without necessarily, like, swallowing platforms whole or, like, splintering off into their own platforms.
0: Interesting.
1: So, for example, Patagonia has kind of gotten a lot of good press, and I think it's deserved for their worn wear program. So they have their own secondhand section of their website where you could send in, like, gently used Patagonia stuff, and they will sell it under their War their worn wear program um which is actually like really neat um so they've kind of like taken over that on their end and then i've heard rumblings about different luxury brands wanting to do that for themselves where it's like okay they sell their own secondhand goods like you would go to like you know the um saint laurent store i think that they're doing that i don't remember so don't quote me on that um (laughs) and bring in your older like saint laurent stuff and they'll give you a store credit and they'll sell it and it it stays within like their own ecosystem you know what i mean Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um i think that's a good thing but what bothers me about it is that like there's so much brand control then Mm -hmm. um i i wish there were a way in which like companies like the real real or individual sellers and i don't think it's possible could like reach out to brands and have this type of like communication because the problem is and i get it like you know you're kind of like stonewalled by brands because if i have like an hermes scarf Mm -hmm. and i'm not sure if it's real and i bring it into the hermes store and they waste their time talking to me about it you know they're paying that employee they're not making any money i'm not purchasing anything If anything, Mm -hmm. it might even be costing them extra money because what if I sell it to somebody that would have otherwise bought it at the Hermes store? We don't know that, but just for the example, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? So like, I understand why that's not happening. I just wish that there were like more cooperation, but I think that brands, and like I said, I don't blame them. They're so defensive because this market has exploded. And in their defensiveness, I think that they're oftentimes really uncharitable um, (laughs) because they want to, you know, I mean, they want to like close this loop. So I think I think they're overly aggressive with their trademark enforcement, in my opinion. Um, And a lot of pieces I've read in like law reviews discussing like this type of issue, like fashion and trademarks and copyrights. They all have like the same tone, which kind of drove me nuts where it's just like copyright, like trademark infringement is bad and counterfeit goods are bad and it's not a victimless crime. And I'm like, yeah, I agree. Like, I don't like counterfeit goods, but like we have other problems, you know what I mean? Like what is real? What is fake? Like if I really want to follow the law, I mean, I don't know at what point as we discussed like this Chanel bag is allowed to be sold.
0: You know what I mean? Right, right. I mean, it seems like I don't love the idea of the the brands bringing this back in house. Although we're seeing a lot more of that right now with other smaller brands. There's a there's a platform called Treat that allows these brands to sell secondhand, but it's really more like peer to peer. I I I wonder when I think about this. I think the most successful secondhand selling environment is more local and personal, meaning like brick and mortar. But then of course, like you might not have someone in your community who wants that thing and then it never gets another yeah. use. Right. So I I don't I I I don't know. <laughs> I, I it's like there's no we just, easy we just reinvented brick and mortar. <laughs> right. <laughs> We're like
1: yeah just just go back to a regular store but the worst part is that like I agree with you.
0: No, I mean honestly, you know, I've worked in retail now for quite some time. Yeah. I started as a buyer just as e-commerce was starting to come up and in fact our website for the company uh-huh. I worked for was down all the time. It would be like oh, our website was down <laughs> all weekend, you know, like that which would be <laughs> crazy news now, but you know like the early that early on like, yeah. Right? And so uh, I I think, you know, I've, I've spent this my whole career hearing that brick and mortar was over, that people only want to buy online, that people only want to buy if it's like an experiential thing in your store to bring them in. You got to have the Instagram booth, blah, 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 blah. It turns out that's not true. And actually, like, I think we're seeing a return to in-person shopping because after being locked up for a couple of years, we're like, oh yeah, like shopping is fun in person and you touch things and you get to try them on and you're less disappointed. And, You know, like returns, no matter how easy companies have tried to make them, are kind of annoying, just like selling on Poshmark. And, you know, like, I think that people also are like, appreciate the social aspect of shopping. So I do think that we are actually seeing a return to brick and mortar as a whole. And we no longer need to start tearing down all the stores, which was like, I think what everyone was envisioning. Uh, I think it didn't help that like, you know, platforms like Amazon really took away the cachet of shopping online, right like now it's like, uh it's so impersonal, right? I do think that we could see secondhand being bigger in brick and mortar spaces now that could even mean as simply like maybe the real rail says, hey, we're shutting down the site, we open stores, right And you can like you can shop on our website, I guess to see stuff that's in stores, but at least someone, Theoretically, is seeing the stuff in real life and getting a better grasp of it has more time to spend with it to ensure it's authentic. I I don't know. I don't know. I mean, with thread up, I'm like I don't even know. You guys are basically a thrift store. I don't know what to say at this point. Um, <laughs> but real real, I think you know has could have an opportunity to pivot if need be. I don't know how they do that, though. Opening stores is really expensive. I I do know.
1: I know the sons are really funny,
0: but like they actually just closed some of their stores. Really? Oh, man. Yeah. That's a bad sign. That's a bad sign. Like I. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, A very bad sign. And That's interesting to me, too. Like, I wonder what was going on there. Did people not know about the store? Like, I've
1: heard this, to be fair. I I heard about it. Like, somebody was talking about it on TikTok, a great um, news source in general. But (laughs) um, apparently, I think it was, like, one of the stores in Atlanta closed. And, Ah. like, there was, like, no notice either. Like, it just, like, closed. Oh, here
0: we go. Like, there was no, like, sign. According to Retail Dive, uh, the Real Reels, this was in February. So, just a couple weeks ago, February 16th. The RealRail said it will cut operating expenses through layoffs and store closures. The moves will cost $1.7 million to $2.2 million in severance payments, employee benefits, and related expenses. They were letting go of 7% of the workforce, 230 employees, and that included closing stores in San Francisco and Chicago, neighborhood stores in Atlanta and Austin, and two consignment offices in Miami and Washington, D.C dc wow that's really interesting so she would assume that san francisco would be a robust location for them
1: and i think it's like weird because we got really i mean i can only speak for myself i got really used to the fact that the real real like exists and Mm -hmm. the fact that like it could not is kind of crazy to me
0: yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? I mean? Like we kind of got spoiled in a way. I agree. I agree. And I think there is an opportunity for a hybrid here. It's interesting, like just skimming this article from Retail Dive, a, a group called WT Partners, which, you know, they do a lot of like forecasting around the retail landscape. They actually said that brick and mortar is far more lucrative than e-com for secondhand so goods in general, especially luxury goods. <laughs> So, for Real Real to be closing these stores, uh, that's a that's a big step, um, and it does make me think that I mean, go on their site right now, it's like ninety percent of it is marked down. So the Real I think, Reels? yeah, there's a ton of stuff on sale right now. It's kind of wild. It'll be interesting to see what happens here. It's like I don't want these things to go away because they are a resource. And they make shopping Mm secondhand easier for people who don't have access for a variety of different reasons. But I also see Mm -hmm. that it's really challenging to deliver what you promise. Here, I went. I mean, I told you that I have been trying to find real hard-hitting news about ThreadUp for years now, and they—you can't, right? You only get just like the most glowing coverage. It's straight out of their PR team's mouth every single time. And the only thing I've ever been able to find that really just, I don't know, proved my suspicions was like going deep into their Glassdoor reviews and really looking at the people who are working in their warehouses, well, really across the board. And they do not have great reviews. Uh, they suffer from wow. the same problem that railrail Rail does, which are really high productivity metrics. They really they have to move a lot of products through every day they have to process a lot of bags they have to launch a lot of stuff they have to ship a lot of stuff Mm -hmm. and it seems like it's just not achievable people leave that company like hating that company
1: obviously like you have to take each thing with like a grain of salt but sometimes you get like a general common theme
0: Mm -hmm, yeah yeah but right up it was like you know it's really hard work. The expectations are too high. It's ruled by an algorithm. There's not a lot of room for advancement. I mean, all these things. There's poop in the bags. Yeah, all that stuff. I was like, yeah, that all that all seems yeah. to be real. Um, the same thing with The Real Real, where yeah. it was like, we're in way over our heads with authentication. We don't know what we're doing. The managers don't know what they're doing. It's really stressful. Uh, there were multiple yeah. re- reviews for The Real Real that literally started with, this is the most depressing job I've ever had. And I just Ugh. was like, wow, I know that feeling. Like, I'm so sorry, you know? Uh, yeah. I can't imagine if like I had, cause I feel a lot of pressure at my job as do you, right? And a lot of it is like self-imposed cause we have a lot of a lot of responsibility and a lot of things to get done and a lot of deadlines, right? But if someone was sitting yeah. at my and watching me all day and asking me how many things I had done and I had to meet a quota of doing so many things, <laughs> I would freak out. You know.
1: You know what? It's like it's like it's like the attorney billable hour.
0: You know what I mean? <laughs> You're supposed to
1: bill in like six minute increments. Oh and my gosh. You have to hit yeah, you have to hit like, depending on your firm, you know, a certain number of hours. Interesting. I can relate, I can relate to the the authenticators at the real real in the sense where it's like, you know, as an attorney you don't want to make mistakes. Like your job is to not make mistakes. Right. You know what I mean? You need yeah. to give advice and it needs to be correct. And I can't imagine, I do not know how it works, but I would hate to have authenticated something and somehow have it be traced to me that I was wrong.
0: I mean, I was, you, know? you would, like you would be written know. up or something. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe. I don't know, but I assume they have a process in place for that. But like, what if you, I mean, I, when you were talking about the Chanel case, right. Imagine that you were the person who authenticated the Chanel thing with the wrong serial number or the repaired latch or whatever the, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming at that point you'd probably get fired or you would feel the pressure to fire yourself. But to be fair,
1: like it, it is, it is kind of unfair though, because like, as I talk about in my piece, like, you know, what are they supposed to do with certain classes of good you know of course chanel is going to be as strict as possible you know what i mean but i don't know if there's if there's a replacement zipper part of me is like yeah that's fine just disclose you know the alterations that were made but that you can't always do that and we don't know where that line is and obviously like look if i order a chanel bag and like somehow every piece of it was redone except for, I don't know, the, the strap, like the chain strap. Yeah. I'll be, I'll be kind of ticked off. I'll be like, that's not what I ordered. It's not a Chanel bat. I mean, come on. Like at that point, you know, you know that you're kind of trying to pull one over on me, but I don't know where that line is. Like none of us do, you know? Yeah.
0: I, I don't either. It's like you said, it's the wild west. We, yeah. yeah. And like I love shopping on Poshmark the
1: most. Um and it's crazy because Poshmark is in my opinion the objectively like the worst platform.
0: Oh I my the god. Worst. There's no one who wouldn't agree <laughs> with you on that. It really is. It's impossible it's so to bad. find things. You certainly couldn't browse and get an idea of what no. you wanted. No. You have to go in there with a very targeted uh subject in mind and like yeah, willing to try searching for it in a variety of different ways. I don't understand the exactly. parties. I don't understand the. No, feed. I don't either. It's too complicated. It's too complicated. It is horrible,
1: and I personally think that, like, you know, the the um, Tiffany versus eBay case was. I I don't remember what year it was off the top of my head, but it was a while ago. Um, the secondhand platforms, it was a different time. I'm almost positive Poshmark didn't even exist. I don't think that they would have been that charitable if it were actually back in time, if it were Tiffany versus Poshmark. I think eBay, especially at that time and even now, they do I see an effort in trying to stomp out fakes and prevent mm-hmm. them from being listed on their website poshmark i think as you know we kind of talked about the law a little bit i think they really take advantage of that gray area um in a way i don't like like i remember i told you like to, pre- to prepare for our interview like i opened poshmark like i normally do and i tried to like look at it with fresh eyes you know and i searched hermes you know i went under like the brand tag that's kind of like how it's organized and i searched just in um which is like a way to organize all the listings and i just looked at listings just plainly without even like tapping on them and i was like this is obviously a fake obviously a fake obviously a fake 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 maybe real i don't even know fake 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 like it was insane
0: yeah no it
1: it's true and it's like that on any given yeah. day
0: yeah no it it definitely is it is uh it's not good. It's not good at all. I definitely feel that Poshmark is is pretty reckless with a lot of things. It's such a strange format, even just that like it's really difficult. You can't really be in contact with someone you bought from and vice versa, right? Like it's very, mm-hmm. you're really isolated from one another. But, and I always assumed that that was for the protection of the sellers i i don't know but then again like they clearly are not doing a good job of policing what's for sale there i know that they have like a policy where you now have no. to have a photo of the actual item but uh that there for a while it was all just like photos stolen from websites and you'd be like is this feels yes. so risky to me like it, what are the odds that what yes. i ordered are gonna show Is gonna show up you yeah. know I
1: feel like you have to be to like use this is going to sound funny but like to use Poshmark safely I feel like you need to be like an expert level secondhand shopper. And that's yeah. what kind of bothers me because like I've done this for years. I've bought stuff, I've sold stuff. Like I know what I'm looking for. I know what things are supposed to be like. Mm-hmm. Um So I'm able to kind of take advantage of the fact that like, it's laid out horribly, and you can't really figure out like, past pricing trends. So you can get like a really good deal on something because somebody just wants to get it out of their closet. But what I don't like about Poshmark is like, you and I, although we kind of forget this, like we're not normal people. You know what I mean? Like, we're (laughs) not like normal. We're really not. Yeah, we're not like normal shoppers. And I forget about that. And then I look at Poshmark and I'm like, this is really bad because you could have like tons of sales going on and it won't even get flagged. Like, you know, somebody will sell a fake on Poshmark. There will be a buyer. The payment will go through. Poshmark takes a cut and nothing ever happened. You know what I mean? Even though a fake was sold and we don't know how many times a day that's happening because it's not like after it's sold that they go back, that Poshmark goes back and they're like, oh, that was a fake. We got to give everybody their money back, including like our own cut of that. Like they keep the cut when that happens.
0: Oh, for sure. Yeah, I would say, like I said, I feel like I said this very early in our conversation, we're going full circle. The only way that (laughs) Poshmark knows that it has sold something fake is if a a buyer reaches out with a complaint and then I don't even know what they do. Yes.
1: And the window is so, the window for returns on Poshmark is so short. Oh, really? Like it's, Oh, it's so short. Like mm. eBay, I don't remember because I haven't had a dispute on eBay in like ages just because I, I haven't shopped with them recently. Um, but I feel like you had like 30 days or something to like return your good. Like Poshmark, I feel like it's like a matter of like a couple days. First of all, you only have a short window to make a complaint, which is like right. really small. It's, it's, it's like less than a week. I mean, a week is luxurious. That's like There's no way it's a week. What if you were like no, out of like town? No, it's like And then, yeah. Ugh. Oh, then you you're just out of luck. If you right. were out of town, you were out of luck. And then you need to get it postmarked, like scanned by the post office within a very short amount of time. Wow. As well, like it's really
0: tight. And see, that deters people from wanting to follow through the process. You know, like so they're going to get tons of people who are just like, never mind. And so I think, but I think that's all by design, right? Because like, they don't want to have to deal with it either. And then they, if someone comes to them and says like, hey, are you selling knockoffs? Are you aware of it? They can be like, oh, like actually our percentage of complaints about that is super small, you know? So it it works in their favor. Uh, I I don't know. I have a lot of feelings about Poshmark. I think that they have created this sort of like, mlm be a girl boss start your own business nonsense (laughs) and the reality is like if you actually wanted to make a living off poshmark which people do mind you but if you do it's going to be your full-time plus job like you have to be doing it 40 50 60 hours a week you got to be hustling like crazy you might need to hire someone to help Mm -hmm. you you're certainly not gonna as all the mlms would sell this conceit that like You could work part-time and be with your kids and make $100,000 a year. Like, that's just not going to happen. It's not going to happen selling LuLaRoe Mm -hmm. and it's not going to happen on Poshmark. And I think that that's been where a lot of their their messaging has been for quite a while. And that's a complaint I have with Poshmark because I think they sell an illusion. Um, But I also think Mm -hmm. that they don't necessarily create a safe, space for customers or sellers even though like there are things there that would give you the illusion that they are that like oh well you can't get messages from sellers so or buyers even so that protects you and it's like not really because i see people going wild in the comment sections on product (laughs) listings. (laughs) It is so funny sometimes. It is so funny. Yeah, it is a mess. It is a mess. (laughs) Um, Well, do you have any final thoughts about secondhand, the secondhand landscape? Anything else you just want people to keep in mind? I love... Secondhand shopping. And I love the fact that we have these platforms. It's kind of
1: funny because, like, on one hand, I do criticize their performance, like, you know, of specific ones, like the real, real. But I think I wish that the law were somehow more flexible and hospitable to companies that want to try and provide consumer peace of mind regarding these secondhand goods. Because I think that allowing companies that don't take possession of goods to flourish. um, I actually think that that itself is bad for the consumer. And I think that we're kind of stuck in like this no man's land right now where the landscape has really evolved, but the law kind of hasn't. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't know. I don't know what that would look like. You know, I don't know if that would be a complete overhaul of like trademark law or something. But I do think that there is kind of a tension in the market that we're seeing where there's a demand for the real real. I mean, people want this type of service. They want a better peace of mind. And, you know, we criticize the real real a lot. But, you know, there are things that they authenticate and they are selling real goods that have passed through you know, authenticators hands and it has gone well. And I'm sure a lot of cases, and that's something good that I think we should encourage. And is something the market clearly wants, but legally, I think that it is such huge liability that I feel like the way the law is, it
0: doesn't even allow it to happen. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. I agree. I think. I think we're in the early stages like we're gonna look back I and mean, I kind of feel like we're still in the early stages of the internet though so I don't know <laughs> I think that <laughs> these are all like internet like the internet is a great example of something that like really grew in a massive way in our lifetimes and like nobody yeah. who created laws like 50 years ago much less 200 years ago uh could understand how how that worked like or how that would work right and so I think this is yeah. like another one where it's things things are going to go wrong before they go right.
1: Yeah, like a lot of judges will talk about like in this type of sphere the issue of consumer confusion and <laughs> consumer <Yeah>. con- consumer <laughs> sophistication. And I just think it's really funny because I mean, I feel like judges would have to evaluate how sophisticated are shoppers of places like the real real but ironically, I question how sophisticated a judge would be him or herself regarding these types um, of platforms.
0: Do you, yes. do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think that's a really great call up because, you know, you'd want to, in an ideal world, all judges are shopping from the real real and Poshmark and whatnot, because <laughs> we're all adopting a secondhand first way of life. But you and I know that is not true. And if you can't yeah. get out there and have the experience to understand why it's why it's hard, right? Uh, then you're not going to be able to make a ruling on it that I don't, I don't know. I mean, I think that's a really great call out. Not only is it new, but secondhand shopping seemed to blow up really, really fast, like online. Like it just seemed like, yeah, people you're were buying right. stuff on eBay right. forever, right? eBay has been around forever in my mind. It, like my entire adult life and my teenage years, like eBay is like, the grandpa of this all yeah but like all of yeah. these other cl- like secondhand clothing focused platforms are uh, secondhand shoes purses etc like they mm-hmm. Poshmark was like kind of around and depop was kind of around but like in a small way and then 2020 oh, it was uh, so small right it was like only i barely knew anyone who used either of those platforms then 2020 came and suddenly like your mom's on there selling stuff or buying stuff, you know, like it really yes. picked up really fast. And I would assume it's a really, it was probably a really exhilarating time to work for these platforms at first. And now it's probably really stressful. Mm-hmm. I I would assume that oh, demand sure. is outpacing resources at this point. And
1: now the problem too, is like, there's all this competition yeah. From like other platforms. And I don't know who is profitable, to be honest with you. But like, guess what? The, the space is still getting more crowded. So it's going to get even harder.
0: I know. And that, you know, something I think about in terms of that is really the way if you're going to run one of those platforms, and it's peer to peer, the way you're gonna yeah. be the biggest and the most successful is by giving the best deal to the sellers but I think a lot of them, because I see Etsy mm. doing this, the air on the side of giving the best deal to the shoppers, and so people gradually take their product away from there. So I, I don't know. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see what happens. I mean, I don't want it to go away. You know, <laughs> like I rely <laughs> I know. on it.
1: I like. I agree. I know. Yeah. Like, if if the real real like, I don't know, ended like next week, I'd be I'd be pretty bummed. Like. I've gotten some really great shoes from
0: there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I mean that's what I'm saying. Like, I think that you know, secondhand shopping IRL is time consuming, and this allows people yeah. to shop secondhand just as conveniently who would normally just go buy something brand new. You know, maybe in the case of real, real people exactly. are not out there like buying a ton of Chanel bags, although they probably are. Uh, but like when I look at places yeah. like ThreadUp or Depop or Poshmark, especially Poshmark, which seems to have the most like brand focused assortment like people yeah. would just as easily go buy a pair of uh, brand new jeans from like made but they can just go search for them on poshmark and get them at just as conveniently and i don't want that to go away i just want it to be a more fair transaction for everyone involved
1: yeah, I agree with you and I think it's interesting cuz you come at that from like the platform perspective where you know you've worked in that industry. Mm-hmm. And it's funny cuz I have the same exact opinion and I just come at that from a more, you know, more of a legal perspective where <laughs> I wish that there were a little bit more leeway to like try and improve the industry by taking possession. Yeah,
0: yeah. No, I mean I can see many positive attributes it, which is, I mean, the biggest one being that it does protect the buyer in so many ways, but I can also see why places are like, yeah, no way I'm not doing that. It's too risky, too expensive, too unpredictable. Oh, it's yeah. so risky. Yeah. Yeah. So I understand that too. Yeah. Like the,
1: the Chanel, the Chanel litigation is still ongoing. So I, I do not know what will happen. I do not know how long it'll take with all litigation. I think it'll take forever. Um yeah. but yeah I don't I don't know what's going to happen with it. You know, I my piece was published um I want to say it was like last year with Fordham um and it's still still chugging along, you know, where I don't know where it's going to end up.
0: I mean, this could be I, I in in the best case scenario, it's something that really just paralyzes the real real for a long time, um it makes it harder for them to get money, makes it harder to feel confident in what they're selling. It can be a bad PR look for customers who are like, "How do I know I'm getting a fake?" Can ruin their reputation. Yeah. I mean, once again, their UVP is that they are, they're authenticating everything. That's if this mm-hmm. chips a hole in that, right? And then, furthermore, it could motivate other. I mean, I I guarantee other designer brands have bought stuff from the real real and attempt to catch them. I would almost guarantee it more companies I would are love thinking to about it. A fly on that wall though. I know me too. Also it sounds kind of like a fun project. Oh my gosh. <laughs> right? Yeah. I'm so curious. Like I would I
1: would kill to know. I mean I think if I'm remembering correctly that is what Chanel did. Yeah. They, they bought they bought bags. Um, yeah <laughs> I would I would kill to like know that. But the the article you talked about from Forbes I pulled it up. Um, it's by Richard Kestenbaum, and it's called The Real Real Sold Me a $3,600 Fake. Here's Why Counterfeit Slipped Through Its Authentication Process. And it's published October 23rd, 2019. Um, and I really, even though it's from 2019, I recommend that people read this article because it's actually very funny. Like, it's not funny that he was sold a counterfeit good, but he, and I do not blame him, he bought the DR book tote. After like touring the facilities and they were like, we're great. We authenticate stuff. And I'm sure that through Forbes, he had the best authenticators on his side and had a lot of resources. And he bought what ended up being a fake Dior book tote. And he is really mad.
0: (laughs) I would be too. Yeah. Yeah. I will tell you the differences are so subtle. That in order to spot these, you can't be processing 38 items per hour. Like you need a magnifying glass. Yeah, it's pretty wild. Like if I were in that job, I would have missed them too. Um, But there were a lot of really small details that indicated that it was a fake. And I just think if they're going to catch that kind of stuff, they need to hire like five times as many people and have them process five times more slowly, right? Because like you would have seen these if you were an expert, these are so specific. What they probably need to do, and I'm sure someone at Real is working on this right now, is turn this into some sort of AI situation where like the... But I wonder like if you can, like can you? I don't know. I mean, that's someone's going to make a lot of money selling that idea though.
1: Uh, if they could. The thing is, it's just like counterfeiting ingenuity just always impresses me not in a good way but the fact that like I've heard that they are faking receipts they're faking the Hermes boxes they're faking the ribbon like
0: it's crazy there was all this drama on Instagram a few years ago like let's say late 2020 early 2021 with this woman who owned a boutique in the Hamptons um where she sold oh no like a lot of like designer it was like designer resale and new stuff right one of the things she was selling were like chanel hair ties which are don't exist chanel doesn't make those right um so that was like already a red flag to people who were an expert in that space but then they were buying earrings from there that like came in what was allegedly a real chanel box um someone bought a set and took them to a real jeweler who was like these are not Real Chanel, and here is all the proof why. And they were able to, you know, just like this bag, point out all of the things that were wrong. And she said, but like it came with the bat the box and the dust bag and all these things. And he said, Let me show you something. You can go order these Mm -hmm. by like the like the palette on Alibaba. And they look exactly like the real thing. They're probably made in the real factory that makes Mm -hmm. the packaging for Chanel. And that is why it is also. Even more complicated, I mean, this woman was definitely knowingly selling fakes that she was buying on Alibaba or AliExpress, but they were so yeah. convincing because they had all the bells and whistles and the like the certificate of authenticity and all this other stuff that came with them, which were all just bought in bulk Um so I do think this is a complicated area because the internet too has made it easier to get all of the pieces to create your own knockoff item, right? Your own knockoff item packaging, the it's whole presentation. True. And so I I'm glad that I'm not being tasked with figuring out the solution here <laughs> because I I yeah. don't know what it is and I don't know how we stop it. I mean, I told you when we were preparing for this that I bought knockoff shampoo on Amazon like 3 years ago and I had no idea that people were yeah. copying shampoo but they were and you know so the the copies are all over the place and some of them are very compelling um the cosmetics especially mm-hmm. because they're like able to copy every detail of the packaging you know and that's when people yeah. think of cosmetics they're really thinking about the packaging you know uh so
1: yeah and obviously like with cosmetics and stuff you get into things you know where trademarks are especially important because you're talking about consumer safety you right. know where it's like yeah. what is in this lotion that i'm putting on my face you know you can't just repackage stuff and slap you know a different brand's label on it um but to- kind of like what you were talking about like uh i'm writing a new piece <laughs> that'll hopefully be published soon about fakes again um, about like landlord liability in regard to them. Oh but going down that yeah, but going down that rabbit hole, I learned a lot about like oh my gosh, like DH Gate and TikTok. Oh <gasps> DH is a is nightmare. A
0: major source for knockoffs. Oh my god. That's another one for sure. It's
1: crazy. Yeah,
0: yeah. It's crazy. Uh, this is not a community that I'm a part of, but you know there are people who like collect those like Stanley yes. cups, right? Uh not the Stanley cup yes. that you win when you win at hockey or whatever, but the ones that you drink out of. And you can yeah. like apparently there are disreputable uh sellers out there oh who are buying gosh. fakes from DHgate and then reselling them. So like <laughs> it's ev- it's everything. And so I it's horrifying. you know, I think I don't know how we crack down on this and Because it's like the proverbial knockoff genie is out of the bottle, right? Unless we turn off everyone's internet, I don't know how it gets fixed.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And that's what's frustrating because like, you know, on one hand, like brands are kind of right to some extent, you know, it's like, it is ridiculous that like these things are entering the stream of commerce and, you know, it's just Chanel spends what's probably a disgusting amount of money on like runway shows and other things to you know maintain the reputation of their brand and to make you willing to spend you know a markup of god knows how much on a chanel bag because you're buying into the brand and you're buying into the name like they Mm -hmm. work on that and they deserve you know the profits associated with it yeah but it's just crazy because now I think like this talks about like a new phase of problem we have where like you know TikTok it's crazy algorithm I mean it knows I like this type of industry and like I see influencers their entire grift is just hawking stuff on DHgate and they look amazing <laughs> like it's 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 crazy like it's uncanny and I I'm just like this is so bad and so horrifying and like the consumption too is like they don't just own like two fake chanel bags like they own like 50 you know what i mean
0: yeah no all of this like drop shipping potential and influencers and influencers of all varieties whether Mm -hmm. they're on tiktok or like i like to watch 90 day fiance all of those people get in on the grift too um basically (laughs) like a lot of these uh people celebrities of different types are able to sell product that they're basically getting from DHgate or AliExpress and slapping mm-hmm. their name their labels on or not even at all so they're all like starting makeup lines and clothing lines and it's all like very low quality possibly not even safe in some regards when we talk about like the skincare and makeup stuff mm-hmm. but it's like the grift is hard and the consumption is wild and it these platforms have made it really easy for that stuff to happen. And so it's like the perfect storm of social media and the ability to just get lots of shit, right? And so it's, it's, I I don't know how any, like we are in a weird way still in the early days of the internet because we still haven't seen all the stuff that can come out of it. But we certainly have for the last five, six, seven years seen how the internet can both be a tool for good and also a thing that like destroys democracy and, you know, rips people off and gets people to buy a lot more stuff that they don't need. And, you know, gets people affects their mental health negatively. Like we're oh, still figuring it out. Yeah. It's like there's not a there aren't a lot of guardrails on anything. On the and I think the
1: downside, the downside, too, is that, I mean, we all kind of know this, but lawyers especially like the law is slow. Which is also a good thing in some in some cases, but like the law is slow to respond to things. So I feel like a lot of stuff I talk about in my scholarship, especially when it comes to like the internet and counterfeit goods, we are just like not there yet. Like personally, I don't know if it's started yet. i'm I'm definitely going to keep an eye on it. But I'm curious about influencers being liable for peddling dh gate fines as they like to put it like dh gate fines because they are essentially acting as a middleman mm-hmm. and they are profiting because they they get to like i don't know like which platforms they're able to use to kind, you know like when influencers like get a commission mm-hmm. yeah but i know that like these influencers are getting a commission from like the dupes they call them dupes but like they're they're just counterfeit goods. They're not just like imitations. Like they're they're infringing on the trademarks. I know they're getting a cut from that. So I am just like, I will give this legal advice to your listeners where it's like, don't don't sell counterfeit goods that you definitely know are counterfeit goods. Don't do that. Uh, that's not <laughs> a good idea. But I'm just curious as to like how the law will try and for lack of a better word, like catch those people. Because like, I know we talked about the fact that like the internet, when we think about it is so new, but like something I did recently that I loved was I looked up old legal scholarship about, you're going to laugh about (gasps) LimeWire.
0: Oh my gosh.
1: That's a deep (laughs) cut. Yeah. Yeah. We're like, yeah, you get lawyers back in the day, like writing this law review article about how like LimeWire is going to destroy everything and You know, they didn't predict Spotify and all this other stuff. But like this issue of influencers skimming off the top from sales of counterfeit goods, it does make me think like, you know, that's kind of like the future. Like, what are we going to do with that? Because I just feel like I just feel like the hammer is going to come down eventually. And I don't know what that's going to look like. But like with LimeWire, you know, it was like, how are we going to find these people? Like, how are we going to hold them liable? And there's still like that similar question with like the influencers, although I think it's much easier than ever to be able to, you know, theoretically like find these people. Um, but like they, it's like whack-a-mole, you know, like their mm-hmm. account is banned and like they pop back up and they're still hawking these goods and they're still skimming off the top. And like these influencers get really big, which is actually really surprising. And you kind of want to be able to cut them off. Like a brand, if I were a brand, I'd practically like want to hunt some of them down because they are moving product. Like it's kind of crazy.
0: Yeah, they really are. I mean, I think it would be, imagine the, imagine how the internet would blow up if influencers were held accountable in this situation. It's, I kind of can't wait to see how oh, happens, know. you know, like I want to know what, how this will go, <laughs> but you know, you, you know, firsthand if, from your job, how the liability can sometimes feel like a stretch. Like I know your piece that you're working on about landlords. You want to explain that a little bit, because I think this will demonstrate for everyone why I could see a future where the influencers selling this stuff could be held liable. Yeah. So... The piece
1: I'm writing now talks about landlord liability. So, under the law, if you are a landlord and you are providing, um, you know, a space, water, whatever services to somebody that you know is committing trademark infringement, you can be held liable. So, a lot of cases that deal with this are referred to as like different flea market cases. So, like literal flea markets, in which, for example, like there's a landlord, yeah, there's a landlord that like would run a flea market and like they knew, like they knew, knew Mm. that counterfeit goods were being sold. You know what I mean? Like really like sketchy, like open air stuff. And that's like, okay, of course that landlord should be held liable. And there's like, previous police raids, like they know 100%. Right. right. But the problem is legally, the standard is knew or should have known. And my issue is, what is the standard of knowledge? Because my problem is, you know, we have all these cases that are like really clear cut, you know, where it's obvious, like, yeah, this was really bad. There was a lot of counterfeiting going on and like they knew. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But what if i were theoretically a landlord here in allentown pennsylvania and i had a storefront and you come up to me and you're like hey i want to sell um you know luxury secondhand goods and i'm like yeah this is a great industry i love it go ahead you know what level of oversight as a landlord am i supposed to have over the sales of your goods and then it ties into my of course it ties into my original piece Talking about like what is real and what is fake, we don't even know what that entirely is on top of it. So if I get a letter as the landlord from Chanel, for example, saying, "Hey, Amanda is renting from you. She's selling fakes. We're just asserting that they're fakes. We haven't you know duked that out yet, but we're telling you they're fakes. And guess what? You can be held liable for that. As a landlord, I would flip. Like I would probably kick you out.
0: Yeah. You know
1: what I mean? But you could be selling real goods the whole time. I don't know, but the risk for me is so great. And the problem is we don't entirely know what that standard is because all of the case law, in my opinion, is just like really over the top cases of like open air flea market, just like craziness. Right, right. But with secondhand luxury goods, I mean, of course, if I were, you know, a particularly litigious luxury brand, I'd love to be able to shut that down with like a letter.
0: You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I mean, this could have all kinds of ripple effects for businesses and just individuals who are selling stuff. Uh, Imagine getting a letter like that in the mail.
1: (laughs) I mean, like I... (laughs) Yeah, and this is like, this is like worst case scenario. You know, I don't know if this would be, like, a significant problem. But the fact is that, like, we don't know what that level of oversight is supposed to be is something that kind of freaks me out as an attorney.
0: Yeah. I mean, it freaks me out just in general. (laughs) Um, I think I'm just having flashbacks to the era of, like, you know, illegal music downloading. And, like, there were people... Like teenagers who had like examples made of them, you know what I mean, uh, because they had downloaded like you know ten thousand songs on Napster or whatever. So it does it does make me wonder. I mean, talk about that was like in the very early stages of the internet. Um, but you know, interesting. Like to think about that is like what happened is all these other streaming services arrived on the scene and it really cut down on piracy. Right so I wonder although I have read on Reddit, uh, on Reddit to so take it with a grain of salt that the era of piracy is returning because these platforms have gotten out of I've control I that too. Okay so interesting so there you go we might be going full circle but like perhaps there something will uh, there will be innovation that comes out of this I don't know what it is it's hard for me to see what it is maybe it is someone who de- who designs AI that very accurately can can determine whether something is counterfeit or not. I think that only works if they're getting a lot of collaboration and cooperation mm-hmm. from the luxury brands themselves. But maybe that that is yes. what prevents that. I don't know. I mean, I think I don't want to be like, oh, technology solves problems because clearly the streaming platforms then outstayed their welcome and now everybody's back to piracy or allegedly. Um but, you know, it's it'll be interesting to see what happens.
1: My theory with the piracy is the fact that like people really underestimate the fact that people in general want to follow the law. I really believe that. Yeah. I think so too. And I think that, yeah, and I think that piracy kind of, well, back in the day as we knew it, kind of ended because Spotify, just for example, just using Spotify um was convenient
0: Mm -hmm. you
1: know it was like finally you could actually have all your music in one place it's actually organized it's not going to nuke your family computer with a random virus it's easy to use and yes it costs a little bit a month but you know what people wanted that they they you know were able to do this legally it was it's a small monthly fee when Mm -hmm. you think about an unlimited library of music and I think that's what kind of, this is my own theory, what kind of like stamp that out. And I think people are talking about Piracy returning because it stopped being convenient again. Yeah. Where now everything splintered well, thank on you. a million Julie. So this was and so much fun. What a great way to end my day. Honestly, it's easier for me to just Google it <laughs> than to go within like three different oh, streaming I do that platforms. all the time. <laughs> so they made it difficult. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like they made it difficult again. And that's why people are like, this is annoying maybe i want to go back to like piracy but people in my opinion don't want to automatically make that their first choice like spotify offered something better and it was worth that and you weren't breaking the law which was a nice little perk um so i feel like platforms like the real real i mean People want convenience. Mm-hmm. They are willing to pay a premium for convenience. Like, the price of stuff on the real real, like, you can get some really good deals, undeniably. But, like, overall, I found it to be on the higher side compared to if you decided to, like, really aggressively use, like, Poshmark.
0: I agree. But yeah.
1: I... But like you are paying for a certain convenience where it's like the pictures are are better and there is customer service. And you know what? I think that they're at least trying to authenticate the thing I'm trying to buy. And you know, and like people use it for that reason.
0: You know what I mean? Totally. I agree. And I think that's why it's really important that they don't lose their uh, credibility and the authenticity space. So be interesting to see see what happens. We might have to have you back in like six months for an update about what's going on that out there.
1: <laughs> <laughs> i might I might be like, yeah, I still don't know. <laughs> and then you know, we'll be like, okay, but yeah, call me back yeah. and I'll be like <laughs> I'm not I'm not sure. Um, but it like I said, I I think that I think the health of these companies is something that concerns me. Um, and I think in general it is good practice for whatever company you use to thoroughly read their terms and conditions before you choose to send in your goods. And you might read them and you might be like, you know what? I'm fine with that. But these terms and conditions, they're actually not like insanely long. Like I think a lay person can get through it. I think (laughs) it's important. You know, you can look at the headers you want to look at. I really do think that like, we can all do it. You don't need to give it to your attorney or anything. (laughs) but i think it's really i think i think it's like really important because we actually don't think about it like it's supposed to be this really frictionless process mm-hmm. and we just send this stuff off and i didn't even think about it except thread ups had my bag for like 5 months and i finally was like wait where is it <laughs> cuz i don't know
0: right that's a good point too <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah that's actually like the only reason this you know i'm kind of like embarrassing myself here but that's like the only reason i actually looked it up and it's when i looked it up that i wondered wait what would happen if this company goes under and that's when i wrote my little piece for the fashion law about it because i actually i couldn't find any information about it
0: like nobody wrote about what would happen and i didn't know yeah. So interesting. It's because nobody knows, but it's it's not it's not going to be good. I'll tell you that. I mean, I just picture people flooding into the warehouses and grabbing what they can and running away. But that's probably way too <laughs> dramatic. But perhaps if they made a film version of but it. Was that, <laughs> but we did talk about that
1: though when you called me because the only example I could really find that's like the most applicable is when second time around, which was a chain of physical consignment stores, went bankrupt. Mm-hmm. Um. And people, people resorted to, like, self-justice where they, they just <laughs> stole stuff. Yeah. They're like, you lost my bag? I'm going to steal this bag. And, like, what were the employees supposed to do? Like, they they, like, ran in and stole stuff. Like, it was just apparently insane.
0: I feel really bad for them. I feel really bad for the employees. I just <laughs> want to say that.
1: Oh yeah. That, that's just terrible. Like there's nothing you can do, but like, at least I'm not excusing the vigilante justice, but at least with those situations, like there was a store that you knew at least at one point had your stuff and you could go there and try to talk to somebody and be like, it's here. Where is it? Give it back to me or whatever. But like, with my stuff currently in a warehouse i mean i don't even know like i said i don't even remember what i sent them at this point right you know it's just as good as it, it would be as good as god
0: for me and there's nothing i would be able to do about right. it it's kind of scary especially if like you don't have a lot of money yeah. you know and like you were really looking to get that money back to spend on rent or and, yeah. I mean, people overconsume consume this stuff i see it constantly in some of the Facebook groups I belong to. And like they secondhand, like resailing their overconsumption is kind of how they keep themselves afloat financially. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you so much, Julie. This was so much fun. What a great way to end my day. Thank you so much. Thanks to Julie for spending two hours talking to me about this. It was such a delight. So super educational. So enlightening for me, definitely gave me a lot to think about in, in terms of resale and the future of secondhand, which is super timely because I'm working on a secondhand ethics episode, more like a pair of episodes, because there's also a lot to talk about there. And I'm working on that with Alex of St. Evans, should be coming your way in a few weeks. Can be a really intense pair of episodes. Um, in the meantime, I'm going to share Julie's articles with you in the show notes. And, you know, don't be intimidated because she writes in a very approachable and accessible way. Go give them a read. I'll also be sharing some other follow up reading as well because all of this, all of the business and law involved in secondhand shopping online is fascinating to me. So go check it out. I know you're going to enjoy it as much as I do. That's all I have for this week. I'm going to go now and put a hot compress on my forehead and do some Eustachian tube massages. Gotta love them. It's a real thrill ride over here at Close Horse World headquarters in Austin, Texas. So I'll see you all next week. Thanks for listening to another episode of Close Horse. Written, researched, edited, hosted, all the things by me, Amanda Lee McCarty. If you liked what you're hearing, you can leave a rating or even a review on Apple Podcasts. But most importantly, please tell your friends. That's that's what CloseHorse is built upon, right? People telling friends and growing this community. If you'd like to support my work financially, you can learn more at patreon.com slash Podcast. I'd also just like to remind you... Uh, That if you can't get enough of my mesmerizing voice, (laughs) or as my friend Kim calls it, my sexy baby voice, you can also listen to my other podcast, The Department, which I co-host with Kim. We talk about trends and how they affect the world around us. Fashion trends, food trends, social trends, social media trends, you name it, we talk about it. I'll share the link to The Department in our show notes, and you can also follow the department on Instagram at underscore the underscore department. I know, rolls right off the tongue. <laughs> um, and lastly, but not leastly, thank you to Dustin Travis White for our music and audio support. Bye.